Hello, friends, and welcome to the Gospel Beautiful Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Chan. Today's conversation is going to be with two uh, academics, scholars, teachers whose work I have admired for a very long time, namely Stephen Brookfield and Mary Hess. Uh, They have recently co-authored a book titled Becoming a White Anti-Racist, A Practical Guide for Educators, Leaders, and Activists. I had a chance to read this book, uh, dig deep into it, and uh, then have a follow-up conversation with these two. And I think that this is... Is just a fabulous, very practical book um, that emerges from their collective years and, and decades of experience working in this space and working to address um, uh, racism within institutions and a whole variety of institutions uh, from uh, from churches to college classrooms to seminary classrooms um, uh, to uh, you know sort of corporations and and other organizations so um, Mary and Stephen don't write this book from kind of a purely theoretical perspective they write it with deep roots uh, in doing this kind of work on the ground and that comes through uh, for me uh, in, in some really profound ways in the book and and, and so this, uh, let me just say something about who I think this book would be really useful for. <clears throat> uh, it, it, uh, for this audience is primarily comprised, I think, of ministry leaders and pastors. Uh, this is the kind of book that you would want to read if you were asking yourself questions like, how do I in a really pragmatic way begin to think about um, critically and, and productively about the topic of, of racism, how to expose it and confront it and to and not just for myself but to bring others along this is the kind of book that will help you in a nuts really nuts and bolts kind of way begin to think about questions like that and so maybe you lead a nonprofit, maybe you lead a church maybe you just lead a bible study and you want some really uh, pragmatic time-tested uh uh, approaches to addressing some of these really challenging topics, and they are really challenging. Um, there, none of this is pie in the sky. There is a deep recognition in in uh, Marion Stevens' work of how difficult and um, persistent you have to be around these questions because they are so very difficult uh, to deal with. So um, I think you all are going to enjoy the conversation. I highly recommend the book um, uh, from Stylus Publishing, Becoming a White Anti-Racist by Stephen Brookfield and Mary Hess. We're going to hear just a few words now from uh, our sponsors. Thanks so much to them. And then we'll turn to the conversation. Thanks for joining me. Baker Academics serves the academy and the church by publishing works that further the pursuit of knowledge and understanding within the context of Christian faith. They connect authors and readers across the broader academic community by publishing books that reflect historic Christianity and its contemporary expressions. Baker Academic authors are scholars who are leaders in their fields, write ironically, and display a healthy respect for other perspectives and traditions. Baker Academic is a proud sponsor of the Gospel Beautiful podcast. Thank you for listening. Hey there, Gospel Beautiful Podcast listeners. This is Brian Schrader, creator of Worship Forward, a resource for progressive, innovative worship leaders. Here you'll find conversations about arranging hymns for your worship band, using song lyrics that promote justice, and how to choose great worship songs to use at your church. Check it out at worshipforward.blog. Stephen Brookfield and Mary Hess, welcome to the conversation. Thanks for asking Thank us. you so much, Michael. Glad to be here. Well, it is a pleasure for me, uh, especially you know, given the publication, the upcoming publication of your book, your co-authored book, Becoming a White Anti-Racist, A Practical Guide for Educators, Leaders, and Activists. Congratulations on the book. It's quite an accomplishment. Thank you. Thank you. Is that the first time you two have written together? I know that you've worked together many times over the years, but is it the first time you've co-authored a book project? No, actually, we edited a book together with a bunch of colleagues from Luther, Michael, but this is probably before you were at Luther, um, from one of the earliest pre-tenure groups. That's Um, right. So it's, it's been years. That was 2008, I think. I think it was on Teaching Reflectively. Um, in in theological contexts. And I think the subtitle was Promises and Contradictions, if I remember. Okay. (laughs) There are plenty of those within theological education. (laughs) No, in fact, now that you mention it, I remember the book. It has uh, kind of a maroonish color, I think, 
And uh, I remember reading some of the essays out of there. So congratulations, I guess, on your second book. Yeah. You know, I loved the way that uh, you actually start with your own personal stories. Uh, and stories, I'm sure we'll get into this, are, play a really important role for how you think mm. about doing this work of anti-racism. And I wondered if you would indulge me for a second and let me tell you a short story of how I first came to <clears throat> kind of a realization about a kind of a racial consciousness within the classroom. I was, uh, I was an elementary education major and so then went on to teach in the public schools for a bit. <clears throat> Excuse me. And I was teaching for Upward Bound one summer and uh, had my science class shuffle in for the first time Had never met them before. And uh, they, they shuffled in in such a way, I think there were 16 to 18 of them, that all of the white students sat on the right uh, stage right side of the room. <clears throat> and then all of the students of color sat on the left hand side of the room. And my teaching supervisor came in in the first five minutes just to check on me and make sure everything was going well. And he whispered in my ear and he said, do you see what they did? Do you see what happened? Did you see, do you see what happened here in your classroom? And I had, didn't even think a second thought of it until this uh, very uh, gracious, generous, impactful white uh, teacher pointed this out to me and then coached me through how to think about it as a classroom teacher. And mm. as I was reading your stories, I was reminded of how formative of an experience that was for me. So. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Yes. Why Go ahead, are all please, the, Stephen, yeah. yeah, no. Why are all the black kids sitting in the cafeteria? I mean, Ve Beverly Daniel Tatum's work has been very uh, so influential um, uh, across the board, and uh, and it's interesting today. I, I get th this critique: um, why uh, are uh, all the uh, students of color sitting together still as, as a um, a, a very contemporary question that students raise and why am I not breaking up those groups immediately and having one student of colour assigned to each white subgroup if we're doing a breakout exercise so that the person of colour's perspective is represented and... Um, you know, it's one of the things I often have to deal with right early on, the importance of racial affinity groups and the need for defense and seeing others who are like you in the room with you and uh, the support that that gives and the, the error of tokenizing students of color and, and making them speak for their race and so on. So with just that simple question that I will get or that evaluative comment that I'll get on anonymous evaluations for me opens up a really good teaching opportunity to explain um, to, to explain my process. Sorry for just jump, jump, jumping in with that. No, no, I'm glad. I'm glad. Feel feel free to do that. This isn't meant to be too formal. But I, I did want to say that I wish I had had read your book <laughs> at the time because the only thing I knew to do was to name it as an uncomfortable thing in the classroom. And so mm. that's what we did. It turned into um, about an hour conversation among the different uh, the students in the class just by naming, Great. why did we do this? But I think one of the things I noticed that your, that your book lifts up is that racism and especially structural racism operate that way. They're, they're the air that we breathe. And so sometimes one door in is just to name the reality and kind of honestly yeah. reckon with it. Yeah, well, and I think, I mean, you started with the story. So let me start with the story that I tell, which is basically that I was completely oblivious, right? Mm -hmm. I'm white. I grew up in a very white setting. I went off to college and was blessed with roommates of color who taught me a whole bunch of stuff, including, for instance, that every morning they would go into the dining hall to look to see who else was there, mm -hmm. which had never occurred to me, right? Because as a white person, I would just walk at just, you know, and that awareness, the the reality of what it means to be one of or what it means to be by yourself and how that shapes racial awareness and the obliviousness that white folk are structured into. That's a really important piece of what we're trying to engage. Right. Yeah, that's would, that. Yeah, go ahead, please. I, I was to say, I think that's, that's at the core of the book, um, really is to say, all right, if you recognize that you do have a white racial identity and that one of the ways that shows up is as a structured blindness, 
then then how how do you personally get out of that and and although you never fully get out of it but how do you at least become more aware of it and then uh you know what what's your responsibility in terms of helping other white colleagues to to become aware of that and grapple with it i mean that's really i think a core problem we're we're trying to work out in the book where does this passion come from for for the two of you you know that's some of what we try to share in the book too but i think i know for myself in a you know in a kind of a very naive way it comes from having been raised in a setting and being raised in a church where one was to be um justice was key and and caring for people not hurting people was an important part of how i was shaped and then growing up to discover that i was doing causing all of this pain right not intending to of course but the impact of my blindness was contributing that's you know that's i don't want to be in a position where i am contributing to harm right now of course as stephen points out it's impossible to completely remove yourself from systems of racialization but you can become actively engaged in trying to change them and trying to dismantle them how about for you stephen where does this come from yeah boy that's that's such a hard question um michael because uh you know i think i i'm both of us were born into uh, working class families. And so uh, early on in school, I got discounted a lot as not a very bright student. And uh, and so I was well aware of class inequity um, growing up in, in the United Kingdom. Uh, that's sorry, I should have said that's where I, I, I spent my formative years, the first 30 years of my life. And... Um, and then, uh, as I got a little bit aware of, of um, where this class inequality came from, I then started to broaden, I think, my analysis and realize, well, this, these systems and these structures, it's not just around class. There are other points of analysis. And so, um, you know, that's when uh, in, in, in the 70s, shows how old I am, race and gender, race, gender, class, where it's the sort of holy trinity of... Um, of of uh, a, a, a analytical framework, so so it kind of came, I think, out of that area, and then particularly when I moved to the states, which was in the very early nineteen eighties, and I worked in far more multicultural and multiracial environments than I never worked in before because I spent ten years in New York, um, and and that's that's when I th- I thought, oh, I, I've got to I've got to think through. What the hell is going on here? And um, and I got to think through what my responsibility is, and um, and I think one of the things we uh, we say in the book is that um, most people, I think, quote social justice rationales for why they do this work, and and they ground it in stuff like equity. Um, but there's also, from my point of view, a selfish motivation behind this. I mean, if uh, to, to grow up uh, hooked by white supremacy, um, which clearly is myth, um, mythological, and to feel that you um, are uh, somehow deemed inherently more intelligent and moral simply because of, you know, the amount of melon in your skin. I mean, it's such a crazy idea. And if, it, if you take that seriously at any level, then, you know, you're just living a complete fiction um, plus, I do feel that one of the ways white supremacy shows up is that it it, it um, criminalizes people of color, particularly in anti-blackness, portrays blackness as volatile, unpredictable, on the verge of explosion. And so one of the ways that I think white supremacy hampers myself as a white person, just speaking for me, is this vague sense that, oh, my God, there is an explosion and a race war and we're going to um, have this incredible event coming up. So you live in constant fear. And to live in constant fear and to live dominated by a myth is such a mentally unhealthy place to be. So I I also say, you know, just, just for reasons of sheer mental health, this is important work. Leaving aside all the... The, the equity motivations that brought us to it. To it. 
You know, I did appreciate the kind of self-interest appeal here, and and I and I think it's it's a helpful angle. I was just reading the last chapter of uh, Robbie Jones's uh, White Too Long, and he makes a very similar turn. Uh, yeah. He says, "I'll just quote this: uh, What few whites perceive, and this is a truth that has come late to me, is that we have far more at stake than our black fellow citizens in setting things right." As Baldwin provocative, uh, provocatively put it, the civil rights movement began when an oppressed and despised people began to wake up collectively to what had happened to them. The question today is whether we white Christians will also wake, awaken to see what has happened to us and to grasp once and for all how white supremacy has robbed us of our own heritage and our ability to be in right relationships with our fellow citizens. So he kind of makes a similar yeah. move towards self-interest. Yeah. Well, and there's an even deeper um, analysis that's emerging, I think. Heather McGee's brand new book, The Sum of Us, which talks about the ways in which racialized capitalism hurts everyone, right? The ways in which it has been fundamentally problematic. I mean, uh, you know, the other thing that I feel like I can say here, which I, we couldn't really talk about in the book, certainly I didn't talk about in the book, is that there's a faith reason that I'm involved in this too, right? I mean, we could talk about on a Gospel Beautiful podcast about yep. the way in which um, Absolutely. A, a sense of connection, of being part of um, the the deep interdependent um, interrelational reality of a transcendence that draws us beyond our individual pieces and brokenness into a whole, right, is a passion that that at least for me says there's a reason I'm doing this work and it's not only on my shoulders, right? I'm being drawn. This love that has been given to me is drawing me outward into into relationship in ways that are beyond rational understanding. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's so well put. You know, an important term in the book is white anti-racism, and that's in the title, of course. Can you define it for us and tell us why we need it? Just before we do that, I just, just do want to acknowledge that we were quoting James James Baldwin a while back, with whom yeah. we we actually begin the book. Um, and when I go back and read Baldwin's work, uh, I often think, what's the point of writing anything? Because it's yeah. all been said better. Yeah, al amen. Already, that's so true. <laughs> so, um, so I know your question was incredibly important, Michael. Can you just reframe that again? Oh, no problem at all. Yeah, uh, uh, white anti-racism is an yeah. important term for the book. Yes. What is it and yes. why do we need it? Yeah. Well, I, I sorry, should, sorry, I just jumped in in an no, extremely please. patriarchal way. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. Really? It's okay? Yes, please. Okay. So um, I, I, I think that um, my experience has been certainly that um, when racism becomes uh, unignorable in an organization, typically uh, one instinctive turn is for the white members of that organization always to look to people of color and essentially say, um, tell us what to do. We're, we're clueless, so we would like the uh, BIPOC in uh, you know X institution or X organization or X community to educate us and and direct us because we want to be as helpful as possible, and it's a very understandable uh, instinctive turn, but um, I I think it's it strategically has so many dangers associated with it, um, and and particularly the the sense that um, BIPOC colleagues have that um, now our job is to watch you wake up in front of us, become woke, and uh, we're going to hear your confessions as to how you're bringing yourself into greater racial cognizance. Uh, our labor is now added on because we have to teach you uh, what we feel you need to do. We have to nurture and mentor you. And really, we, we're just exhausted from dealing with this stuff ourselves and trying to keep ourselves um, alive and, and in reasonable shape with each other. So, um, so I, I, 
I think that germ, that germ lies behind the idea that there are distinct tasks that um, uh, white people like, like Mary and I need to do in terms of understanding what our white racial identity means, which is, you know, a, a lot of what we talk about in the book, and then, and, and then getting past the shame and guilt that, again, a, a lot of white folk have, understandably, uh, around the racial past in, in, in this country. And, and I would also say, of course, in, in England, with our history of imperialism and colonialism. Um, so, um, you know, g getting past that and thinking instead, how do I take a pride in my identity, not constantly try to abase myself and seek absolution from colleagues of colour, but instead say, you know, um, let's focus instead on what it means to be a white person who is engaged in anti-racist work. So what does white anti-racism look like? And, and given the privileges and, and the identity and positionality that we have and the, and the work that we can do in organisations, there are specific things I think that we, we can do that um, are helpful in moving an anti-racist agenda along. So we really wanted to focus on, well, what, what does it mean at specifically as a white person uh, in concert with other whites for, for a, a lot of the time, uh, given that we move in predominantly white organisations, the, the, two, the two of us as authors and as practitioners, you know, what, what is our particular contribution and how can we help people think through um, what that is, and avoid some of the missteps that we that we have made, and that we've seen other people make as they um, try and move into to living out an anti-racist um, orientation. Can I build on that and note that I think one of the other things we try to do and point to is that there are a lot of ways, and this is maybe particularly true right now, where institutions, predominantly white institutions, grapple with notions of diversity mm. or inclusion, or they, they use this language that doesn't get at the structural underlying oppressive, oppressive issues, right? And so deliberately saying anti-racism yeah. is a way of saying, look, we want to deal with the structural issues, right? right? And that this is not just a sort of um, tick the box thing here. Right. This is a, a marathon. This is a journey. This is a long-standing thing. Race is, is, a, is a myth, if you will, but racism is real, right? Mm -hmm. Race is a social yeah. construct. We need to figure out how to really take it apart. And for me, that is part of what the hope is in the language of anti-racism, yeah. right? Like if we created it, we can uncreate it, right? We can, we can do something quite different. That's a helpful quote. I really appreciate the way you spun out that term of, you know, why it's important for you to use the language of anti-racism. Sorry, yeah. Stephen, I think I may have cut you off. Go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I was just saying amen to that. Yeah. yeah. Um, so here's the, I think some of the heaviest lifting is in helping folks, uh, and I'm thinking specifically of the church and then Mary of our shared context at, yeah, at Luther Seminary, um, is helping folks recognize that, that there's a deep connection, there's a deep connection between our, our self-interest and our common good interest and, and helping people to, to see how, you know, that this isn't just about white people helping or, you know, like sort of donating their time to the right. cause of diversity. But it's actually, we are in a common boat that is leaking. Yeah. And how you two lay out some really pragmatic, I love how practical this book is, um, ways to kind of move that dial a little bit. But let me just ask in that general way, how do you help people to see that this problem that we're naming of racism within our society is actually a problem for each of us? Mm. Yeah, that's <laughs> neither of it's us a high, this into that one. Question, I, I well, know, no, sorry. no, I mean, I think to some <laughs> extent, a it's, question. It's, it's, it's a wonderful, it's like the question, right? I mean, on some level, this is about context and in any given setting. But of course, I'm sitting here right now in St. Paul, Minnesota, on the 13th of April, um, you know, days after yet another young black man was killed by a police officer in a traffic stop, right? And in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial. And I think that there are ways in which 
um, the the heartbreak and the anguish and the rage and everything else that emerges when you watch this happening over and over and over again, to me says we have to figure out how to how to allow ourselves. I mean, I don't. I think this is a Baldwin quote too, actually, or maybe it's anyway. There's the the piece about. Brene Brown says this as well. When you numb your emotions, you can't numb them selectively, right? And so if you refuse, if you deny the pain that comes from seeing another human being harmed, that also means that you lose the ability to feel certain kinds of joy. You lose the ability to engage the full range of emotion. And we are so stuck right now in so many toxic places. We can talk about the COVID pandemic, you can talk about climate, you can talk about any number of things where we have been unwilling to allow ourselves to feel what's going on, right? And that that feelingness is the sharedness, right? So you talked about how do you go from the individual to the sense of the common, right? Some of that is, do we even allow ourselves to hear each other's stories, to believe each other's stories, to see the shared pain that is there? I mean, I, I, it's impossible for me on this day, this in St. Paul, to understand how anybody could not feel it, frankly. You know, Mary, I was on, I was on a phone call earlier today with, uh, with a woman who works with Lutheran World Relief, and we were talking a little bit about a similar phenomenon, but with regard to kind of international catastrophes. And like within, within the U.S., the U.S. media is so... Mm-hmm. fixated, you know, on domestic concerns, and partly because right. we have a lot of really serious domestic concerns, and so that's a reality. But but there is a lot of, uh, re- there are a lot of remarkable tragedies happening within the world right now that I think, because of the way that our news is, how we ingest it, we just don't see it, much less feel it, right, the way mm-hmm. that, you're, <laughs> that you're calling us to. Right. Yeah, well, that's one of those things. I'm sorry, I can't not pick up on that. And here I'm jumping in now and not letting Stephen say something. But the thing about media, right? I mean, this is something I spend a fair amount of time studying. The challenge with media in the United States and the way we fund it and the way that it's structured is that it it, it exists essentially within a profit-making mechanism that is intending on capturing people's attention. And it's driven increasingly by algorithms behind the you know, digital infrastructures of various kinds of social media that are not human beings. Those are just algorithms that say, oh, look at this. This person spent this much time on this page. Yeah, well, what, what captures that attention is rage and fear. And, and that just, you know, spirals more and more. And, you know, until we find ways to shape our practices where we are not, where we're listening to podcasts, for instance, or we're choosing, we're making other choices to hear other voices around the globe um, in ways that allow us to perceive our interconnectedness. That's not something the U.S. dominant media is ever going to invite us to do because it doesn't make money for them. Sorry, that's maybe pretty blunt, but... Mm. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I, I, I think it's important that, um, and, and that as much as possible, we we, uh, in whatever role we find ourselves, we normalize um, disclosing our emotional responses on a daily basis to what's happening. Now, I think sometimes when someone like me does that, um, and I talk about what's in my head and in my heart. Um, Today, uh, I just came off a session where um, some of this was, was, I was trying to do some of that. It can come across as uh, an obsessive concern with self, you know, and very, very self-indulgent. But overall, I think the more, particularly if you're in a, a leadership position or a position of any positional influence or authority, um, that there is a behavior that, that we need to learn, which is just being, just making it very, very normal to come in and say, it's hard for me to focus on the purpose of this meeting today because such and such is in my mind and I just don't know what to do with it and I'm feeling a sense of hopelessness and uh, I'm trying to find some some spark of, of, of uh, hopefulness. Um, and I think that you know when when I've I've been working with different organisations that um, 
that letting down of the guard and revealing the um, the the reality of one's emotional life is is hard for a lot of people. I think it's part also to do with patriarchy. It's, it's kind of harder. F- I, I've noticed for men to do that, and I certainly have had to really learn that because it's not something that comes at all naturally um, to me. So uh, I think one of the things that we do emphasize throughout the book is this role of modeling and being the first to, uh, to, to bring up something that's going on right at this minute and, um, and, and, and you know, uh, the, I think if you don't do that, that's a fantastically missed opportunity. So I just, that's the thought that was in my head as we were thinking about yeah. this. And I would say, too, one of the things that we talk about at some points, in addition to talking about story, is what it means to invite people to breathe, even, right? I mean, I think one of the more fascinating things for me about the work that's been done in the last 10 years is a recognition of how trauma is so much a part of so um, so many of our contexts, and certainly processes of racialization. And we can't engage that only cognitively, Right. We have to engage it cognitively. We have to think about history. We have to, and we have to learn to breathe and we have to learn to feel what our bodies are feeling. And I think Stephen is right. That's not something that men in particular, to make an overgeneralization about gender, which I recognize, <laughs> um, but it's not, it's not something that our dominant society right now is really um, giving us much learning or practice in. Mm-hmm. And yet, if we're going to really engage our embodied selves and the ways in which race have been constructed, race has been constructed, we need to do that. Yeah, yeah that's so you know, true. I was, I, oh, please, go ahead. Finish no, I was, I was just going to say, I was in a workshop on uh, just two days ago and where uh, someone led us in uh, uh, a breathing exercise. And it was just... Um, so helpful to to kind of really ground us i think in what we were then going to go into so um and again that's something that my anal um male consciousness says oh what the hell is this touchy-feely stuff going on so it's 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 something that you know i think really really has to be very intentional and and you 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 use your authority to interrupt these dominant patterns and practices and to to do something like that so um i i think most of the listeners to this podcast are in some ways connected to churches or faith communities of, of some type and as i speak with with them they I, I, a common frustration that I hear is one that I think, Stephen, you you wrote the, this sentence. Let me just read it real quick. And I think it embodies something that many of uh, my students, Mary, our students express. So, Stephen, you say, quote, uh, one is an, a, an activist voice that says you can't wait for people to learn to be anti-racist. They're per, uh, perpetrating too much hurt right now. So your duty is to stop them having any influence. The other is an educator's voice that says you can't expect people to learn on your timetable. You have to start where they are and bring them along as best you can. I think that is a sentiment that many pastors and church leaders feel, not only on issues of of racial justice, but on a whole bunch of different issues, right? They might have a a deep burning desire for, you know, uh, ecological justice or whatever it might be, but there's there's sort of a, a lot of space between where they are at and where maybe their congregation or community is at. How do you navigate those challenges? And this is to both of you, because Mary, I know you also are a very fervent advocate in, in our space and, and have been for a very long time. How do you navigate that pull to want to, to be there now because you know there are real world harms being done? And then also recognizing that people don't learn at the same, at the pace that we necessarily want them to. You know, I I wonder if that really was my sentence. I don't recognize that as either yours <laughs> or mine. Maybe Mary, sorry for the we, Well, no, we wrote, we wrote a lot of this together, right? Yeah, like we yeah. like we wrote original we 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 wrote things and then we worked with each other. But I, I definitely recognize and agree with the the sentiment it expresses. I mean, there is this dialectical pull, these opposite tensions that you're you're constantly fluctuating 
between and, and trying to arrive at some productive synthesis. And, you know, in terms of negotiating them, uh, well, my, my quick answer would be probably I don't negotiate them very well. I tend to, I tend to try in my head and say, all right, this is an activist problem. And um, so if we don't do something quickly, then those who don't have the best interests of the community or the class or the organization at heart are going to win and they're going to take over. So we just need to have a very speedy and smart maneuver to stop that happening. Um, and and then I, in other contexts, I do very clearly say to myself, I... I I don't have the luxury of acting in this way because my concern is over the long haul to bring people to a different way of thinking and being. And that is an educational process where you, you know, um, dumping your own agenda and your own pace is not going to work. It's going to backfire. So, I, you know, I, 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 for me, it's helpful to try and distinguish between the two and to clarify to colleagues, well, now I'm thinking as an activist or slash organizer or now i'm thinking as a an educator slash teacher um and then just acknowledge that sometimes those those divisions don't work and they get mixed up and you flounder through as best you can and you seek a network of like-minded people who are dealing with the same tension and try, trying to negotiate these situations which is why it was so great to write this book with Mary because we both bring our experiences into it and we kind of were a great check on each other or we expanded each other's perspectives uh, and I think that if you have that network you absolutely need that network I don't see how how you can really flourish very long um, in in this kind of environment doing this kind of work if you don't have that 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 support, that supportive group. Yeah, and I would build on that to say that I think one of the other issues, Michael, sometimes is people um, don't understand that this is collective work, which is one of the right. things that we try to say yeah. a lot oh, in the book. And yeah. I think the, the, the individual leader, whether they're a pastor or a leader in some other setting, who thinks it's up to them alone, has gotten lost, actually, in terms of what, they, so helpful, what leadership actually is. Yeah. And that's, that's also where it becomes the most difficult kind of work, right? Like it's one thing for a, an individual to give voice to their opinion or to try and, you know, express something that they're deeply passionate about, but then to lead a group of people in, and especially in churches, which are often, though they may not be racially diverse, a lot of times you'll have ideological diversity. You know, a, a different kinds of diversity that make this kind of work all the more difficult. Go ahead. Right. Please. Well, well two, I was going to say two things about that. One is, I'm not sure that we've done such a great job of helping, I'll just speak now at Luther in a seminary context, of helping people learn to listen carefully in believing ways, right? To hear somebody else's story and accept it rather than judging it or presuming it's wrong or, you know, knowing somehow. So, so the first thing is, how does one listen? Um, but I also think, and this is one of the benefits of something you can do in religious settings that I don't think you can do as easily in other settings, which is to recognize that, and I'm just going to be blunt here, that it's not only on my shoulders, that God, that the Holy Spirit, that, that the breath of God moves, that this is beyond individuals, which doesn't mean that we have nothing to do, right? It doesn't mean that, we, <laughs> that you therefore can just give up and not do anything, but it does mean that we have to be um, attentive to and discerning of, and that requires, for instance, seeing conflict and disagreement as a catalyst for learning. And I, and I think one of the things we don't do very well in the U.S. context, dominant spaces, or at least in church spaces, is help people engage conflict as a, as a spur for learning, as a way to deepen relationship. Instead, we see it as a way to, to flee or to deny or to pretend it doesn't exist or you know, to, to go into our polarized corners. Um, and, and I think that that's something that we really have to work on. We have to work. And, and that's a place where, for me, the, the educator versus activist thing doesn't really work so much because I actually think all of these things might be happening at once, mm -hmm. right? So the same way we might talk in Christian circles about linear time and kairos time, and those are both, right, both and, 
I'm, I believe I'm an educator and an, an activist, and we're functioning both to be present to people where they are at the same time as we're lifting up a vision of where we're trying to be. That's such, that's such helpful framing, Mary. And uh, the conflict part is really challenging in, cur- in church context because I do think that, I think there is a real temptation um, within churches when conflict emerges to just kind of quickly either extinguish the fire or to kind of push it off and say, oh, that's not really happening, or, or to engage in some act of diminishment of the conflict. But then when, when I read the Gospels, I see Jesus stirring up conflict everywhere. And so I think what we often fail to recognize is that conflict may be, in fact, a sign of the work of the Spirit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, to put it sort of theologically, and that, but that we're not equipped as leaders to enter into conflict in a way that we see it, like you just said, as, as an opportunity to learn. It's, yeah, conflict is so uncomfortable. <laughs> well, that's that's actually where I find some of the stuff that is so powerful right now that's coming out of social justice educational spaces. Because, you know, it's like the shift from going from quote-unquote quote safe spaces to brave spaces, right? There are these, these um, metaphorical shifts or paradigm shifts that are happening and helping people perceive um, how to have a more complex engagement with the world is is an educational challenge right but it is also something that we can learn to do i mean that's yeah anyway and i think one of the the themes that is one of the dominant themes throughout the book is bearing witness um truly trying to do some perspectives taking just listening very very attentively to what we're hearing and then acknowledging the con the conflict, living with it, not trying to close it down prematurely, which institutions love to do, um, uh, in, in my experience. And so, you know, a lot of the practical exercises, I think, that we are proposing in the book, and we did write it to be a, a, a practical guide, as the subtitle says, you know, it was, it was, it's meant to be used uh, in, in multiple settings. I mean, so, so much of the, the exercises are really focusing on, well, how do we really listen and, to, uh, and hear what each other is saying and then not try to deny it or explain it away or dismiss it and just say, what does this mean for us to work collectively when we realize these differences are um, deep and endemic and but they should not be something that stops us trying to find collective common interest and uh, engage in some kind of collective action. So, you know, that's a dynamic that's that, that to me is central to to a lot of this work. It is such a practical book. I mean, everything from lists that say do it this way and not this way to what are effectively rubrics. For, for evaluating, you know, how things go. So it, it is a very, very practical book, as well as being, you know, um, sophisticated theoretically. Let me ask you this question. I want to invite the two of you to reflect on kind of the long arc of your involvement in these issues. And how did you approach advocacy for racial justice maybe earlier in your life? And how do you approach it now? And where's Where's some of the daylight in between the earlier you and as you embody it now? I think for me, earlier in my life was a very typical uh, response, which is I would quote um, uh, what Lipsitz calls the possessive investment in whiteness. Look, look, uh, look at all the stuff that being white brings you. Look at the... Um, structural disadvantage in incarceration rates, in access to health care, in um, the, the achievement gap. And so there would be a lot of uh, kind of outrage about how can we live with this clearly inequitous system and just accept it as, as normal. So I would start from a place, I think, of theory and um, research and statistics um, and then for me, over time, I've realized 
Um, and actually, some interestingly for me, because I'm usually pretty disparaging about business literature, uh, which shows my um, socialist predilections. But uh, Stephen Denning has written a couple of things on on the language of leadership and narrative leadership, and and he kind of outlines an approach which really begins with personal narrative and uses narrative to draw people in to create a sense of urgency and identification between people's experiences and the problem you want them to address. So you do that through a dramatic story that engages interests and then you fill in with the stats and the research and the theoretical justifications that I used to begin with. And that has been a, a, certainly an enormous change in, in, uh, in uh, over two or three decades in the way that I've, I've approached this. You know, um, to be very honest, and it might be just because this happens to be this week in my experience, but I feel like the more I work in this, the longer I work in this, the less I know. And so mm -hmm. to some extent, I feel like one of the important things for me has been building relational accountability. So what I mean by that is that um, moments in which I screw up, which I regularly do, right, in classes and, you know, that I have some, some people, some friends, colleagues who will help me um, hold myself accountable to the things that I care about, right, and, and who will help me, um, you know, recognize the harm that I have done and seek to repair it. And I suppose... That's the way in which, um, you know, some of the processes I'm involved in now have to do with, you know, use labels like restorative justice and restorative action and talk about accountability because I'm interested in something that is deeper than. Um, but, uh, you know, the other thing I, that hasn't changed for me, I'm not quite you, you asked this question in terms of daylight, and I'm not quite sure what that meant, Michael, but I still I don't think I could survive without music and poetry. And so there's also the things that keep me going in the middle of this, right? So it's conversations with colleagues like Stephen, and it's listening to poetry and music and, and remembering joy in the middle of the heartache so that it's, that there is, I mean, we, we right. talked earlier about it's, there's a self-interested way of working about this, and that's not necessarily bad in the sense that there is joy to be found in this work. Yeah, thanks, Mary. I think, yeah, just to, to clarify, um, I think what I was trying to get at was to, to, to hear, hear you reflect on your long engagement around this issue and to wonder how you have grown as a racial justice advocate and maybe how you're doing this work differently now in 2021 than maybe you did in 2000 or whatever the work, you know, whatever the year might be. Well, I mean, I think the answer is still, for me at least, that I seek to deepen accountability. And I think I have I have friends and partners now that I've worked on with this for a much longer time, so there's more complexity. I mean, I think one of the things maybe I did when I was younger was think, you know, there's a black view of this, and if I just get my stuff together and I just know the right way to say something, right, when right. that didn't allow any complexity for anybody. Yeah, and I think your your point about growing into greater complexity um, is is so so right on because uh, you, you know you were saying you 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 get the sense that where you are right now is that at times I really don't know what I'm doing, and and I agree so totally with that. Things happen every week where I think to myself, what was I thinking? Uh, and I know what I was thinking, and it seemed like a good idea at the time, and I'd kind of worked out why we're doing a particular thing. And then you find out how that is received, and you just say, oh, okay, back to square one. Uh, here, here's a very salutary reminder that just longevity doesn't bring wisdom. It maybe brings a greater awareness, as, as Mary was saying, of what you don't know, and a humbling awareness of that. Um, so I, I think also that's been a, a sort of metaphysical or epistemological change, just a, a realization that most of the time I have no, 
no clue what is going on. And I have uh, often very little control over what's going on. I used to feel as if the success or failure of some activity w was significantly determined by how good I was that day, how on I was, you know, and, and whether I designed something really skillfully and whether I was sufficiently energetic or charismatic. Now I realize that really what, what goes on is, is largely out of my control. And that's been, um, if I had any wisdom at 72 to pass on to junior colleagues, that's one of the things I, I typically say, you know, you, you have way less control don't take it all on your own shoulders in, in terms of thinking that you are responsible for success and responsible for failure. Well, this, this is actually a great, uh, great transition to another question. I, based on what I've read of, uh, from, the, from the two of you, assessment is something of an important thing for all three of us, right? We're all educators in, in a certain degree or another. How does a person assess whether their work for racial justice in an organization or a congregation, whatever your context might be, how do you assess whether it's working or not? <laughs> Ooh, wouldn't it be nice if there were an easy answer to that? I know. <laughs> One of the things that we've tried to say in the book is, and, and, and I, I push kind of hard for this, is there's a, a little chart that basically says, let's look at institutions and um, it's a developmental work in some ways because one of the things that I have seen is you can't just go from not having any language at all for talking about racism to suddenly leaping into this other space. You have to learn with people along the way. So I suppose something like that gives you some sense of, okay, there's movement that can happen. But I think it's mysterious, quite honestly. There are ways in which I think things are like, you know, yeah, anyway. Think it's well, it, it, no, I think I, I, I think you're, you're right about that, Mary. I, I just know that, you know, within the popular culture and within uh, kind of our, our media environment, one way there are different ways that people try to signal their commitment to these things. Right. We have yeah. a board that has this percentage of people of color and women and, and, and whatnot. We have, uh, you know, these uh, employee benefits for this this you know, sort of demographic of people. And that none of that is necessarily bad. But I get the sense that you all are after something quite a bit deeper. <laughs> <laughs> well, I um I, I do tend to think a lot about institutional metrics um, because I've been in a lot of organizational um, uh, projects where um, the conversation is the point and, and, and nothing really does change. There is no change in terms of the, the metrics that you were mentioning, Michael, in terms of, of membership. But also, you know, uh, hiring practices and the way that people are promoted and what counts as good teaching and um, the deliberate attempt to create spaces for BIPOC people to be able to share concerns with each other, have their own networks. And, and so I, I'm very in, interested in all of that personally. But as an educator, the way I define success is, has changed, I think, quite drastically in that... Um, if people still come back ready to talk, to me, that's success. That's my ultimate definition of a successful initiative. Will people return to continue the conversation despite all the complexity and division and so on that, that's being revealed? And, and I, I think I used to feel more caught in a transformative paradigm that success represent would, would be seen when real racial healing happened and we embraced at the end and sang, we all sang a spiritual or we shall overcome or, or, or whatever. And th there was this transformative uh, realization. And, and uh, I don't think that way at all now. I think just um, success is if people are willing to come back and, and continue the conversation. Yeah, I guess I want to I want to echo that and say both I care about structural changes and it matters to me that we make structural changes, right? And so the the questions of who hires whom and how are they paid and in what ways and what are the rubrics for a course and and how I mean all of that stuff matters greatly to me. But I don't think that there is a end point, 
right? Like I think right. I think that the the thing for me is this is a long term process, and and it it doesn't end. It just keeps we keep doing the work, and each step of the way, I I feel this is partly what I mean by it, the more I do it, the less I know. Each step of the way, I feel like there's something new I'm learning about what's the next thing to work on. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that that is really helpful. I mean, obviously, those 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 metrics are important in part because they can tell you who is who is in positions of power, mm-hmm. who is in uh, who has the opportunity to make decisions that impact you know larger numbers of people. And so, on the one hand, those you know those metrics are really important, but there's there are also invisible kind of interstitial realities that can't that for which there are no metrics, right? What is the what is the culture like? You know, what is it? What is it like for people to live here? Is it a place that that contributes to human wholeness? Does it contribute to their sense of vocation and calling? And those are things that that just don't you can't quantify quite easily. There is a bit of mystery there. And, you know, given that this podcast is kind of focused on church leaders who are dealing in those spaces quite a bit, that's sort of why I'm wondering about how do we if you have a, a pastor who's been working on these issues for maybe a year or so and she just wants to know, (laughs) <laughs> How am I doing? Um, I, I think your book actually provides some ways for thinking through some of those things. So, yeah, yeah. I mean, um, in any, I guess, let me, let me put this in terms of a question. If there, if there were a, a pastor or a church leader uh, that wanted to get started in this kind of work, maybe they know that it's important. Maybe there's even a small group of people within their congregation or context that is interested in these kinds of questions. What are steps one and two that you might encourage them to take? And what, what are some of the signs that they should look for that maybe it's working or maybe, maybe the approach is not working? Great question. We're both <laughs> waiting for the other person to answer. <laughs> So, co-authored interviews I mean, are hard, right? Especially yeah. over the this kind of Zoom context, there's always a little well, bit of latency. There's also, there. Yeah, I mean, there's also a thing about about church leadership, and and contrasted with the some of the wider circles or the context of this book. But you know, I I am um, one of the things I work on with students, right? Is trying to is is doing both the personal work that needs to be done for them in their own lives, right? as well as seeing how do you move to the collective. And in, a, in any given church setting, I mean, that is like super contextual, right? Like, I mean, and, and we try to say varieties of things in the book. Like we try to talk about how to set up conversations that function. We talk about the various ways to look at history, right? I mean, one of the realities for white folk is how little we know about the actual history that we're living in, right? And at the same, at the, at, at, I know that there are a lot of people who are very frustrated um, with church folk who just want to set up another book study, right? Because what is a book study? It doesn't go anywhere. Well, a book study might be the first thing. Like, you know, the, there's like a, an initial step, and then there's, okay, how do we get towards restorative giving? What does it mean to look at the neighborhood that we are embedded in and actually understand the context we're in? What does it mean? You know, all those kinds of things. And the answer to what's the next step is going to be different from setting to setting. And I, yeah. I, I mean, I would just, it seems to me that in a church context, we have vivid leadership in terms of the gospel and what, mm. what biblical justice talks about, right? The right. different ways of thinking about justice in the Bible. So you would have to at least start there. Yeah, that, I, I think you're absolutely right. Um, that would be one uh, uh, starting point for me. Another would be, um, uh, again, talking about um, how this plays out in their own life and the struggles and the calling that they feel. Um, so you begin with a, some narrative disclosure and then uh, maybe think about a common point of reference, digital testimony in particular, where um, uh, people are talking in, in extremely vivid and compelling terms about what they're facing, 
So I, I think you put those three together and they're, they're three good starting points to, to bring people in, the gospel, narrative, uh, disclosure and, uh, and digital testimony. Well, Mary and Stephen, you two have been so generous with your time. Thank you for wrestling with these really difficult questions over the air. And especially thank you for the book, uh, Becoming a White Anti-Racist, A Practical Guide for Educators, Leaders, and Activists. Um, Again, congratulations on the book. It will be uh, available around the time this podcast is published. And I wish you both all the best in your work. Thanks so much, Michael. You too. Thank you, Michael. Thank you for listening to the Gospel Beautiful podcast. I really hope that you benefited from the conversation. If you did, make sure to leave a five-star review. Also make sure that you're subscribed so that you can receive updates whenever new episodes drop. Thank you very much.